everyone. Welcome to the Nourish Circle podcast. I am Lori Schwartz-Amudio, registered dietitian and host of this show. I am so excited to have this interview for you to listen to today. It is with Kimberly Dark, who is a writer, professor, and storyteller who works to reveal the hidden architecture in everyday life so that we can reclaim our power as social creators. I was first introduced to Kimberly through her book, Fat, Pretty, and Soon to Be Old, which we do discuss a little bit in this interview. And I was just blown away with the style of writing, how I actually felt like I was having a conversation with a friend, not that I was reading. And when the opportunity came to get an advanced copy of her current book and then interview with her, I was just so ecstatic. Um, I think you could probably pick that up a little bit in this interview, so um, I hope it doesn't sound too fangirly. But the new book is Damaged Like Me, Essays on Love, Harm, and Transformation. And from the back of the book, it says, people who have been damaged, thrown away, marginalized, or traumatized are more capable of apprehending social patterns precisely because they've needed to be aware and vigilant about how the world works. For too long, those who rely on long-held rights and entitlement have claimed that others are biased about the very topics on which they have expertise. Damage Like Me is a series of essays and stories that reveal a complex social landscape. It shows how possible and vital it is to build roads to a more equitable and loving collective culture that includes body sovereignty, racial justice, gender equity, liberation, and much more. I loved this book. So many essays just blew me away. And I'm hopeful that you will feel this way when you listen to this interview. In the show notes, you can find places to order the book from. It is currently on pre-order. It's June um, 2nd, 2021. And the book is to be released June 29th, 2021. If you go to AK Press, you can find the book for sale on pre-order. Also, if you go to Kimberly's website, you can find all different ways to interact with Kimberly, as well as um, a link for the Hope Desk, which is a social justice help desk that Kimberly runs the first Tuesday of every month at 6 p.m. Eastern time. And we talk a little bit at the end of the episode, but I just want to direct you to her website if you're interested in that. So I really hope you enjoy this in interview even half as much as I did having it, um, because then I know you're going to enjoy it a lot. So take care, and we'll talk soon. Hello, Kimberly. Welcome to the Nourish Circle podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. So excited to have you here today to talk about your new book, um, Damaged Like Me. I just keep calling it Damaged in my head, but it's Damaged Like Me. Um, but before we start, I was wondering if there's any identities or paradigms that you were from that you'd like to just set us up with it before we dive in. Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, identities or paradigms. I mean, I, you know, in terms of uh, identity, I'm a, well, my last book was called Fat, Pretty and Soon to Be Old. And that's a, that's a shorthand for, uh, <laughs> you know, some of, some of the things that I am. Um, I'm in my 50s. So I'm not, uh, you know, I'm in that liminal space where we're not supposed to talk about it. Oh, yes. <laughs> so hold on for as long as possible to adulthood. I, I'm also queer and um, a parent and a sociologist and uh, I don't know what else. So a yoga teacher, um, you know, in addition to all these, all these things. I love that. I love all the ends because I think sometimes we start to kind of pigeon ourselves into one thing. And actually your book has a really nice kind of flow through of all the different things. Um, and so I, I appreciate the ends. Complexity. Um, the, the idea of complexity and, and that we can be as much of ourselves as possible at any given moment is super important. Yeah. And there, the fluidity of it about how one might come up more at one point in your life and, and move through. I think that that, again, it, I've read your previous books as well as this one, and you can see it in your writing, just the, the ebb and flow of identities at certain points. And I think that's really cool. So thank you for sharing that. Totally. Um, I think one of the things that for me is today, well, first I have to say having uh, read your book in, the, you gave the best description of birth I have ever read in my life. <laughs> sitting there reading I'm like oh my gosh that's so true um so thank you for that I it was just it was so funny to me I was like I kicked a nurse as well um 
<laughs> oh, that is that in the Mothers and Misfires essay, I think. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I did a nurse. <laughs> you did too. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I feel it's kind of a writer proposition sometimes. Um, but there was one comment that I read that um, the body is resistant. It was in the essay that the name is eluding me right now, but the, the one with the doctor. And um, you wrote that, but then it also felt like a theme throughout that the body will remember, but the body can be resistant. And I was just wondering if we could maybe start a little bit with how the body um, is resisted and how that kind of moved into your storytelling. Well, you know, look, I, I feel like um, that's a really interesting thing to, to pull out there because I feel like there's, there's sort of a mystery with the body, right? It's like we're um, often living in the mind and we feel like the mind is in charge. <laughs> we feel like the mind is, you know, the important thing that makes the decisions. But actually... Uh, the body has its own language and its own wisdom and its own um, ways to move forward, ways to slow you down, ways to change the script. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I don't feel like I always completely understand what is my body up to. Yeah. And I, I think it's sort of a trick of the mind that we think we should understand what the body is up to because um, yeah. So, so I, you know, I try to um, sort of honor whatever is the wisdom and truth of, you know, just the basic reality of the body, because I mean, fighting it doesn't make sense and it doesn't work. And it's like, you know, but a big piece of that is surrender. A big piece of that is sort of going like, right, I'm choosing to live in not knowing all the time. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I do think that, you know, sometimes the body um, resists or slows us down. There's a, there's an essay in this book um, about, uh, I, I developed a driving anxiety during, um, during the Trump administration. Well, you know, right before he was elected, actually, when it became clear it was coming. <laughs> And I honestly think that there was, um, you know, some kind of schism between my body and mind that created this anxiety because I at first didn't see how, how would this be possible that people in, like enough people are actually going to elect someone who is brazenly racist and sexist and um, and actually advocates harm. And how is this possible? And, you know, and my body kind of went, yeah, well, it is. And those people are hurtling down the freeway with you every day. So, yes. you know what? I think I'm going to like put on the brakes. And, you know, so of course, my conscious mind is like, no, we got places to go. But the body is like, no, no, the brakes, the brakes are what's happening. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, I mean, that's one example. Yeah, that actually made a lot of sense when I was reading it. Um, being in Canada and getting kind of that little bit outside view, we have our many problems as well. But that outside view of Trump, and then the way you described it in the book, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember being um, my husband's families in um, Arizona and going and visiting them and being like, in the airport going, did you vote for him or did you vote for him? Like I could see like that just lack of trust come up. It is so cool the way your body was just, no, we don't want to drive with you. Um, I often tell clients that their brain may live in their body, but they're not friends with each other. They don't necessarily speak to each other to try and figure out what's going on. Um, but yeah, I just, I really enjoyed that, um, that the body can do things without us consciously wanting it to because of the stuff that's happened in the past. Um, yes. And, and it also, you know, I won't say always, because again, it's a mystery to me a little bit, but I think that the body also protects us sometimes, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I, like, I can't, I can't say that it was actually protection when I started getting this anxiety about driving on the freeway, because I think that I was an unsafe driver for a while. And then do you know, I actually just surrendered and was like, all right, I don't drive on the freeway anymore right now. And maybe that'll come back again. Uh, you know, but like, I'm open to it. But, um, uh, but yeah, I do think that sometimes the body protects us, but perhaps not always using a discernible logic. Mm -hmm. Yes. And one that our brain definitely can't figure out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 
there it, again this book was just packed with so much that I could write notes for days <laughs> and but it was interesting because I'm also doing a uh, gender equity course right now and the your book lined up so much with um, what I'm doing in studies and so I was a little bit interested because again our bodies inform so much of our work and what we do and then there was a beautiful essay about labels and language and I, it's to me, when I work with individuals in um, larger bodies, it's really important to use the language that they want to use. Um, and then taking this gender course, uh, it's a master's level gender course, um, I'm learning more about language. And I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit to that, because um, you write so beautifully that I feel like I'm talking to a friend when I read, like, in all honesty, before we connected here, um, I felt like I know so much about you. Um, and so Again, I think it's this important language concept that I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit. About. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about this a little bit, and then maybe you can prompt again to see if I'm going in the direction you want. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think I think it is important to remember always that language is a proxy for meaning. It is not actually meaning, right? So, you know, a, another way to think of that visually is that the map. You can look at a map but it is not the landscape. The landscape mm -hmm. is something outside there. And the map is the thing that we made in order to try to understand, well, where do I go from here? Um, so language is like that as well. But because language is organic to humans, I think we forget that it is not the meaning itself. It is actually a proxy for meaning. This becomes important, especially when we talk about um, stigmatized bodies and identities and the ways in which language becomes um, language is taken into the body right mm -hmm. and uh, the ways that uh, certain certain ways of discussing for instance the fat body can become mm -hmm. both cherished and painful at the same time, right? So for instance, I was having a discussion with someone just the other day, there's a new gym that has opened in my area. And I was she's a member and I was asking her about what they have at the gym and what the, you know, what it costs and what the who are who's going, you know, like, I just was curious all these things, in part, because I might like to go to the gym, but also just to know like what's happening in my neighborhood. It was clear to me that in that discussion, her attachment to the word overweight, to refer to her own body, to refer to other people's bodies was absolute, right? Like this is an absolute thing. Well, but, you know, we also can break that down and go like over what weight? Yeah. Oh, okay, so there's an ideal that we're supposed to uh, conform to. Okay, but so what does this relationship with this word mean? It, it's a way to place every human within a hierarchy of worth. And so it's tricky when we try to relanguage things. And, you know, it's one of the things that I love about storytelling is that oftentimes, uh, and, and maybe you see this in my writing, that... Um, I look for, try to look for just a slightly different way to talk about that same thing that we always talk about in the yeah. usual terms. Yeah. Um, because I think that's useful to remember that when you keep telling a painful story about your life over and over again, it is actually possible to find language to tell the same story that hurts less. Mm. And that, that, that diminishing of pain, that, that, um, reminder that we are constantly reinventing not only our relationship with culture, but actually how we are able to live in our bodies and in the world. I mean, that is so powerful. Mm -hmm. So these I, are some I, of my thoughts on language. I don't know if I'm going in the direction. Oh, you I, I had no direction. I was going in. I just <laughs> I throw a question out there and see what happens. Um, I, there was a couple of times you wrote in your essays where you would say, did you see where I went there? Well, you would say a little section and it would be, 
your a positive wording or a more optimistic way of framing something and then I would find myself having to go back and reread and go oh yes that reframing of language is just phenomenal and I think particularly as um female identifying people we're not taught to speak like that particularly about ourselves right where we're supposed to be down I guess about ourselves Oh yeah, we're supposed to be down and self-deprecating, and 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 furthermore, not even see and acknowledge the privileges we have, and that is very dangerous. You know, that's um, the the title of the last book, "Fat, Pretty, and Soon to Be Old," is really kind of about look, fat and old are neutral descriptive terms like tall or blonde or you know whatever but in our culture they are almost always used as insult words whereas pretty is a word you are never supposed to claim for yourself it can be applied to you by others but the idea that I acknowledge that I have a different experience of fatness of aging as a result of a certain facial configuration that adheres to white supremacist values. Oh, we're never supposed to talk about that. We're never supposed to see that. And, you know, but, but that is the reality, right? That um, there are different ways to experience a stigmatized identity. And I, so I love it when people talk about things like beauty privilege or colorism is another one that is a really powerful thing. You know, when Meghan Markle recently, you know, was uh, when, when that couple was being interviewed and people were talking about colorism and the idea that, yeah, she has a different experience of being black than someone um, with much darker skin. And that is obvious to some, but, you know, because we never talk about what it means to have conforming beauty as an identity, that stuff is like, it's just like, oh, I don't understand my own experience. I don't, you know, I can't, I can't find it. Um, but we can language that and we can tell stories about that. I think it's important. Oh, for sure. I really, um, I, in, um, I'm going to mess up the words now, fat, pretty, and soon to be old. Um, that was my first introduction to your writing, actually. And the way you um, go through all of the, the beauty privilege within that is very cool, particularly the how you relate it to your mother's upbringing and then yours. Like, I thought that was a phenomenal juxtaposition of that beauty. And I still think there's a lot of that underlying um, model school, for lack of a better word, mentality that that kids are particularly female identifying kids are getting raised into. Of course, of course. And, you know, just because, just because what used to be modeling school, charm school, any of those things has sort of gone out of style, doesn't mean that the messages went away. They're just um, really strong on YouTube and and the way that we, um, you know, the way that we teach about, makeup and hair and clothing and uh, body conformity, you know, all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought, I thought that was a really beautiful thing. I have a 13 year old daughter and I see the same kind of things um, in YouTube and TikTok and, and how it's presented to her now in a different way. It was presented to me in the nineties and, and um, further back, there was a particular essay. I was wondering if um, we could, dive maybe a little bit into um and because I'm finding it um just because of the people that I think maybe listen to my podcast um the yoga studio one I'm finding the name because of course that pedagogy in the yoga class mm-hmm. I just thought that that would that was beautiful for me in the way you set it up that um the instructor, you know, it was more of a, um, it was different than a usual, I think, yoga training in the context that they more mentored you and then you covered for classes and how you were presented. Um, And I know yoga culture in Canada is still very thin, white, Lululemon wearing lady yoga. Um, And so (laughs) I'm just interested in And I'm, I'm just interested in that conversation of how you still sometimes feel um, 
people look at you differently when you're leading a class, as well as how I thought it was just lovely the way you listen to the body when you do adjustments in. Mm -hmm. I think adjustments is the right word. Yeah. So, you know, I, I first want to just say, I, I think that the way that I learned to teach yoga with my teacher, which is more than 20 years ago now, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a slightly different, um, slightly different era in American yoga. Um, but it is more traditional than what happens now, which mm -hmm. is, um, you know, studios uh, have people pay large sums of money to learn uh, a rather eclectic practice and way of teaching. And, um, and then they, you know, they crank out yoga teachers who adhere to often a certain aesthetic and, yeah. um, and, and to a certain extent, lack a specific lineage in yoga. Mm -hmm. And there's more to say about this, because I think that, you know, there's, there's some very good conversations happening that need to happen about um, cultural appropriation and yoga and, you know, yeah. what, what yeah. this means. And I, I'll just recommend Susanna Barkataki's book, um, uh, Embracing Yoga's Roots, uh, regarding some of that. But um but, but so, yeah, so, so here's the thing about being a uh, yoga teacher, a fat yoga teacher, is that when I talk to other fat yoga teachers, most of them have either started teaching classes on their own or opened their own studio. And I think it really is significant to understand that you know, as a person with a 30 year practice who has written about yoga and culture, who has, um, you know, taught regularly for more than 20 years, I am literally unemployable if I were to try to go out and get a job teaching yoga. And um, again, I mentioned to you the, the um, you know, the conversation I had with a friend recently about this new gym that opened up. And this was one of the things she said to me was, um, yeah, one of the things that's disappointing is that, you know, the only people who are teaching the fitness classes there are um, like super skinny, super perky white women. And the majority of the people who attend the gym are, her, her word was overweight, you know, are, mm -hmm. are overweight. And I, and I just keep saying, cause she used to be a yoga student of mine. And I just mm -hmm. keep thinking like, Oh, I wish, I wish Kimberly were teaching here because, and I stopped her and I said, you know, those, those places don't hire people like me because I am not on brand for them. Mm -hmm. And on brand means that, they're selling the myth that if you come there and do that exercise stuff, you're going to end up looking like the teacher, which is, uh, you know, I mean, look, that's not likely to happen. Even if I were the teacher, if you were the teacher, you know what I mean? People yeah. are going to stay looking like themselves. Yeah. <laughs> that's an actual fact of it. Yeah. So it doesn't matter who the teacher is, but you know, um, yeah, so, so, so really, if I were trying to apply for a job teaching yoga, um, it would matter less what kind of experience or depth of study I have, and it would matter more, uh, you know, they'd be more likely to hire a teacher that's been at it for six months if she looks on brand. Um, <sighs> so all of this, though, because yeah. that essay on fat pedagogy really is about what is my body teaching in the room? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that it is teaching, everyone's body is teaching something slightly different. Because again, there's the stuff that we say, and then there's the, the reality of what does the body in front of you look like? Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes we want to get sort of disembodied, like, uh, well, I have this expertise, even as a sociologist, when I'm teaching sociology in the classroom, my body is also teaching. My body is also there. And, you know, especially if I'm going to be covering topics related to um, appearance, as I, you know, because I sometimes teach classes like gender and identity. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I want to say to students, look, I know that you know that you have a fat professor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
like, let's get clear about this here. Like, we're not yeah. going to pretend that my body has not endured the insults that we are going to discuss in this class. Yeah. Like, we're not pretending that. And so I think that this is true with yoga as well, that, um, you know, I definitely have had the experience numerous times in my life where people come in and like, to, like literally look me up and down and go, yeah, this is not the class I want to take today. Wow. And I mean, you can, you can feel that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and I want to say this is specifically true because I mostly have taught yoga in settings where um, it, community is welcome, right? They're not like I have not opened my own yoga studio. So I have my own students. I teach in settings where, uh, you know, it's a community center. And so everyone comes and some people are excited I'm there. And some people are like, who's this? Are you um, kidding me? Look at her. You know, yeah. I also so I'm gonna follow Sorry, up on that. I, I know you've you've hit a you've hit a good topic for me today. <laughs> um, I I also feel like this there's something changing as I age as well because I think that when I was younger, and I had a very um, powerful yoga practice. I had you know I I was my body was very capable. Um, there was a different experience in being the fat yoga teacher who could break your stereotype about, oh, can you, you know, who can do, who can do a handstand or who can do, uh, you know, the vinyasa practice. But I am now in my fifties. I'm also arthritic. I, you know, I walk with a limp. My practice is very different than it used to be. And so my body is actually, more conforming to people's expectations, which is, um, it presents a new challenge for me in my own identity. Like I'm not the, you know, I'm nobody's stereotype breaker anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think that we are constantly needing to revise um, our own narratives about our bodies, but also to it's a discovery, right? To pay attention to, oh, you see me now this way. Oh, mm -hmm. isn't that interesting? My life has changed because of how you see me. Mm -hmm. Anyway, sorry, I've rambled on now. Oh, no, I, I am <laughs> sitting here totally enjoying this. I'm like, uh huh, keep going. It's, that's fabulous. Um, I actually I had a thought that came up when you were talking about teaching with your body in the room. Um, I'm, I'm a college professor. And so we've been online for a year. And so they get that the view you have of me is the only view my teachers have. And I noticed a huge disconnect um, this year. And I didn't actually think about it as my body also is part of my teaching mechanism. Um, and it's really interesting because I felt I know I feel lower energy sitting in a chair talking. I just hadn't thought about the whole presentation of me. Um, and I guess that's it's the same for you when you're teaching yoga or when you're teaching students or when you're, you've, you've done shows um, for many years and presented that bringing your body into the space and then what comes back at you and how can you be prepared for that? Mm -hmm. You know, that's, it's so, it's so powerful to think about, you know, what does it mean to be an embodied presence? And, and I, especially with intellectual pursuits, you know, if you're a professor, you know, I think, I think we, we tend to not even register that, mm -hmm. oh, my body is actually in the room. And so are their bodies. Yeah. That the way, the way somebody can learn and listen and understand is also mitigated by our physical circumstances. Um, do you know, I do a, I offer a, um, an intensive called body wise that takes place five days in Hawaii. Um, I do, this is a retreat that I do twice a year for professionals exactly because I noticed that there were so many folks who, so many of us, I'm going to just go ahead and include myself when I say this, so many of us are well-meaning when we want to, and you know, we go like, yes, inclusion. Yes. I want to invite everyone. Yes. I want to include. Um, but it is a much harder task to learn to take into account. How does my actual body interact with these other bodies? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and so, you know, I, I have definitely seen, um, you know, for instance, uh, maybe a yoga teacher that specializes in arthritis, uh, you know, in, in really being attentive to arthritis. I sought out a teacher once like this. So she was like fine with my um, fatness, but my uh, partner at the time, the person I had brought with me to the yoga class was gender non-conforming. And it was it was visibly like she didn't know what to do with my partner's body, like in terms of where do I touch and how do I adjust? And because this class was a very hands-on adjustment sort of thing. And I think this is, this is really what we work to get at at these body-wise intensives is, um, you know, when we say we want to welcome everyone, that means that we have to constantly be looking at which bodies do I fear and why? Where is my unconscious bias driving? Uh, even when it is not congruent with my values, how is it driving me? Um, how do the expectations of my profession play into this, which I think medical people are up against in a huge way, right? That there are expectations in that profession of fat hatred. And so how, how does the training you have? And, and then furthermore, I'm very interested in how do we transform the culture of our professions, um, whether we happen to be doctors or uh, yoga teachers or sociology professors or nutritionists, you know, how do we go back and do that? So, um, so yeah, those, those, uh, those intensives are very gratifying for me because I think it's important work that we uh, continue to try to live up to the values we assert. Yes. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I totally tried to manipulate a family vacation to Hawaii to go to one of them. <laughs> oh. um, we meet my in-laws there frequently because my husband's grandfather is from Hawaii. And so I was like, okay, so I would like to go for these seven days and no one else had the vacation. I was like, they're like, why are you so bad? I'm like, well, I don't want to hang out with you. <laughs> I want to go there something. <laughs> <laughs> I have faith in you. You're gonna, you're gonna make it one day. <laughs> I am going to. <laughs> I will get there. Um, it's. Uh, I was thinking as well when you were talking about how um, all the different when we have all different bodies and spaces, and, and we have to to pull up our own fear. Like I mentioned, I was online for classes this year, and I found the fat phobia. Um, fat phobic, sorry, comments from other students, extremely high, higher than I've ever dealt with. And um, the program we used, you don't have video for the students. And so I, it, I think it really brought out that I can say whatever I want, because I don't see who I'm harming, or how I'm harming. And I, I was really frustrated multiple times trying to shut it down. But it's interesting to me about how it's, I, I didn't think it was there as much the last four or five years. And now I realize it was hidden. Yeah. <laughs> That's such a disappointment, isn't it? <laughs> such a disappointment. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Totally. Um, but it's how do you um, handle like all of the, in, in a yoga class or teaching setting, the different things that come up for people, because it's a lot of therapy and work to get over those bias and thoughts and not necessarily can happen in a yoga class. No, no, no. And look, even the, the body-wise intensives that I do, you know, um, a person could do that from a therapeutic perspective. Obviously my perspective is sociological, is about how do we, through interaction, change the culture, right? I mean, this is this is where I'm coming from. And I, I think, um, I think there have probably been, you know, more than one or two people who have uh, left that kind of intensive and thought, you know, maybe I also need some personal therapy in addition to um, mm -hmm. these things, because it, it is it is sometimes hard to uncover the fact that we are not always working in congruence with our own values. That is a challenging thing. But also so necessary to my mind. Um, and, and, you know, as you've, um, as you've seen in the, in the books that I write, uh, my, my hope is to always be um, 
pointing out the promise and the potential of self and cultural understanding, right? So this is not about, oh, I screwed something up. This is like, no, 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 literally every human has bias and we want to keep biases. We also want to understand where they trip us up and to work with that. And so it's a hopeful process rather than yeah. one that's scolding or somehow, um, you know, I mean, we're all struggling. We're all yeah. struggling with how we use language to frame the world around us and how we work with others. Yeah. And even the generational language, like the the way you mentioned with, um, there was a, a, a caucus that you were in where you were identifying yourselves and you use language that was older. Like, I think you called yourself a femme dyke. And then the, the next was they were like, that's like quaint or something. Like I was like, oh, there's age differences with language that I never really thought about, to be honest, that... Yeah. how we how we move through time we start to identify differently um I was also thinking about just um like fat bodies and you wrote um a, an essay in damage like me about the plane and then you also wrote a different plane experience in um fat pretty and soon to be old and I just they were so um juxtaposed upon each other but mm -hmm. so important I think as a like for me as a person who fits you know, I, as much as a person I think can fit in a plane seat. As much um, as sized for humans. <laughs> yes, I, I always joke that when my kids were three, that was the only time a person ever fits in a plane seat. But um, but I just thought the the one story was about you know a, a little. It sounded almost more hopeful in, in your first um, in your last book, and then this one it was. I on it, it took my breath away. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit too about that and even just how you um, presented the story. I was reading it started and I was like, oh, and then I, I realized where we were going. So it was uh, it was honestly beautifully written. <laughs> Thank you. I, I'll, I will say something about this. So, yeah, there are a couple of stories in Fat, Pretty and Soon to Be Old about my experiences on airplanes. Right. Mm -hmm. And. Uh, you know, one of them is kind of about realizing, oh, right, we are not all big in the same way that, you know, a man who is very tall and muscular is also rolling out of that seat, but he is treated differently, you know, he's like, he's like, he's like magical. And he's like, oh, that seat wasn't made for somebody like you, wasn't it? And so look at you, what you have to endure. And then, you know, whereas I am similarly outgrowing the seat, <laughs> nobody is looking upon me with, uh, you know, with compassion or understanding I'm a burden um, somehow. So this is the, you know, this is, this is the reality, right? This is the reality of the situation. We are not all big in the same way. Um, some bigness is disdained. Some bigness is celebrated. And um, so, so that's in fact pretty and soon to be old. The story in, um, in Damage Like Me is about uh, an incident where and look, it was bound to happen. I mean, before the pandemic, I, you know, I was probably on five airplanes a month. You know, that was oh. my, you know, my average because I speak at universities quite a bit and I do did storytelling performances in person. I do those things online still, but it's different now. Yeah. So, um, so I traveled a lot. So it was bound to happen, but it hadn't yet. And so that was a surprise that... I happened to be seated next to someone who was actually a bit larger than me. Mm -hmm. I mean, but you know, the point is both of us needed the space plus a little. And what are you going to do? So it happened that that individual was also a woman. She was appeared to me to be a black woman and um, she appeared to me to be younger than me. And she appeared to me to be um, really shamed by the situation that she found herself in. And I knew <laughs> uh, because I am a frequent flyer, because I, you know, because I am on planes a lot, that if one of us was going to get thrown off of that airplane because there wasn't enough space, the airline would pitch her, not me. 
because I am, I am a frequent flyer customer, right? Like, like that is literally what a business does is a business looks and go, which of these two customers would we prefer to lose? It's not the middle-aged white lady who flies five times a month. Yeah. So my mission when I saw, because <laughs> my, my habit is to get on a plane almost last. I, I don't like to be in there as long as, so, you know, so when I'm getting in and I'm seeing my seat and her sitting already there and I'm like, oh, I'm looking at the plane and it's like every seat is full. And we are going, and I'm, so I'm just like, immediately, we are going to make this work. (laughs) (laughs) Neither one of us is getting off this plane. (laughs) So how do we do this? Well, um, the, the, I suppose, um, epiphany that I had, which is what is uh, put forth in that essay, is that in those moments when I was cramming myself into that seat next to her and feeling her shame. And also, I mean, there was this weird little moment too, where like I'm apologizing as I'm trying to push myself into the, I mean, and I'm like sitting up on one hip. So I'm like literally leaning into her and I'm apologizing her. And she quietly says, it's okay. Just, just do it. And in that moment, I realized that this business model has put me in a position to do violence to another person, and I am doing it. Mm-hmm. I am choosing to operate within the structure that has been given to us. And I am now, with my body, doing harm to her body. And this is, I mean, this is an incredibly gross proposition that I think many people are in, in probably smaller ways, far too often as we interact with profit-making companies, where there is no way for somebody to simply say, oh, well, this, this customer needs more space. And so, you know, here's how we're, we, we just... We need to, you know, ask for volunteers so that somebody can get off of the plane. And sure, it's going to cost us a little bit, but this is a human that needs slightly more space. No way for them to do that within that certain profit model. And so in that moment, here are two fat people in a situation where we have to do damage to each other. Or in this case, because I had the broader perspective of the two of us, And I knew if one of us was getting pitched it, you know, I could have volunteered. I mean, I could have done that, but I had work to get to. Right. And I don't get paid unless I show up, you know, and also, you know, it's, it's very hard to reschedule my work. Right. If I'm, if I'm speaking in front of an audience at a campus, that's not going to get rescheduled. No, it's no. just it's just a loss and it's, you know, it's a loss in pay for me and it's a loss of an event. And so, very tricky. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think um, we have to start noticing more often when we accept for-profit paradigms that cause us to subvert our own values. And um, it is tragic to notice that. But I also think that the more we do it and the more people that do it, the less we might accept the circumstances we are given by businesses who, you know, this is, this is precisely the same thing with, uh, you know, with businesses that like, where you know that the people who work there are not making a living wage and yet you shop there because it's cheap. Well, you know why it's cheap. (laughs) (laughs) There's no mystery with the Walmart model. There's no mystery there. It's nope. cheap because they don't pay people enough to live. Is that okay? Well, I think I would rather, you know, buy a sports bra somewhere else. Yeah, no, totally. It was, I, I've never heard it framed in that way, but like within the capitalist model, that's, that was very mind blowing. Um, I didn't realize they would, kick one person off the plane that in my naivete when I was reading if we, that, I if we both can't if we both can't take a seat yeah what else do they do 
You can't have somebody standing in the aisle, right? Mm -hmm. Which is literally what I did during most of that flight. You know, as soon as we got, you know, as soon as we got off. Yeah, yeah. And I just stood in the aisleway. Um, And that young woman who was sitting next to I mean, she was just absolutely head down, uh, unbearable shame. I mean, like she didn't, I didn't see her move once during the entire flight. She was just packed in there and stayed put. And, and as often happens, um, didn't wear a seatbelt during that flight. You know, I can't tell you how often that is that uh, fat people don't wear a seatbelt. Don't ask for the seatbelt extender, just don't wear it. And flight attendants sometimes get surly and put them off the flight, but often just ignore them. And we think that the plane isn't going to take off till everybody's got their seatbelt on, but it isn't true. Some bodies are literally not worthy of safety. And uh, I asked a flight attendant friend of mine once about this, right? And she said, look, you can't force somebody to wear a seatbelt. And I'm like, well, gosh, I thought you talk like you can. Yeah, you do talk like you can. But she said, she said, I do it too. I do it too. Sometimes I see people and they are just way too big for the seatbelt or the seat. And you just go, what are you going to do? And I'm like, offer them a seatbelt extender. I mean, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. But that is not the practice on airplanes. A person can ask for one, um, but flight attendants don't just sort of go by and hand you one. But to me, they should. (laughs) Like that just no common sense to me. It does, does seem like common you sense. asked me if I want headphones, you could just hand that. I that exactly something exactly. honestly. There's so many things that I find in life where I'm like, did we think about this before we, you know, did it? Like it just blows me away. Um, but before we go, I'm trying to be mindful of your time. Um, I have noticed you're getting very good on TikTok and Reels. Um, and I was just wondering if you want to chat a little bit about um, your kind of coming into this video social media world. I actually, I really enjoy them. It's one of the few things I go hunt for headphones on when I see it pop up on my Instagram feed. Um, Cause I'm so I, glad to hear that. Uh, Cause it's very new for me. I've been yeah. on TikTok all of two weeks now. Um, and uh, so I'm on TikTok as the real Kimberly dark because somebody Already, do you know um, Kimberly Dark is a name? Is like every goth girl named Kimberly has my name on the internet. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny. That's funny. It is, yeah, it is actually a family name for, for yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so so the real Kimberly Dark is my TikTok account, and then of course Kimberly Dark on Instagram. But uh, I just started making these videos recently. Um, and, you know, and people seem to be watching them and, and liking them. Um, at first I thought, oh, I couldn't possibly like one minute, like what can you say in one minute? And so it's sort of been a, an experiment for me to go like, right, can I focus down on one idea? And, uh, you know, so I've, I've made quite a few little videos uh, recently about abortion and how we might f- reframe conversations about abortion because the current frame that we are using that centers male sexual pleasure and centers um, male dominion over women's bodies, you, well, you can't, you can't have a complete conversation if that's your frame you know if if keep your legs closed is the frame on this issue i'm like look i'm a big gay dyke and i don't need to keep my legs closed and you know lots of people can have sex that doesn't involve sperm getting near a womb like what have you what have you lost your mind there's other ways to talk about this and um so so yes so i i'm enjoying like uh finding the one minute groove (laughs) yeah no, um, you've been on TikTok longer than me. I joined this morning because I was like, I'm going to try. I always say I'm in my 40s. I can't figure this out. And I'm like, oh, there's lots of people in their 40s doing it. I should figure this there out. Are. There are. Yeah. yeah. I um, don't know whether it'll be a long-term love affair, but I'm there now. And uh, and uh, yeah, social media is, is a interesting thing. thing. 
it's a thing. Some days I have the energy and other days I'm like, oh no. But I learn a lot. So there you go. Probably some things I shouldn't learn. Um, this has been so lovely to talk to you. I'm honestly, I was so excited. Um, I text our mutual friend Fiona right before I was like, I'm talking to Kimberly, Kimberly in five minutes. I'm so excited. <laughs> so um, I totally was geeking out. And is there anything um, you wanted to promote or anything before you go? Um, I know the book, but anything else you want to throw in there? Do you know, I just, I feel like I have some things that people can uh, participate in for free if they want to. I do a monthly live online, live Zoom, you know, yeah. event called the Hope Desk, which is the first Tuesday of every month. And I talk about two issues related to social inequality somehow with the idea that it is hopeful if more people know at least enough about an issue to get into civil conversations with others. Um, so, you know, things that we've handled in the past are like um, billionaires, what's the deal? Uh, racial wealth suppression in the US, what's the deal? Uh, the gender pay gap, what's the deal? Mm -hmm. um, you know, so that's the idea is like, how do you at least know enough to have civil conversations about these things? And that's free uh, once a month, 3 p.m. And you, standard. you advertise those on Instagram because I've seen them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's the, the link for the Zoom is at the bottom of the homepage on my website. So okay. those are easy to find. And um and yeah, coming up, um, I've got, you know, some uh, the, of the trainings on the topics that I cover regularly. The BodyWise Intensive, of course, the next one is in January and then June. We had to cancel, you know, this last year and a half, but yeah. uh, we're back on for January and June next year. Oh, June 22? Yeah, January and June next. So, yeah. I think I'm supposed to be going. Okay. Okay. There you go. There you go. <laughs> June, July, like July 1st was our, our tentative plan to fly out. So maybe I'm going to have to go early. I can, maybe you can come early. So yeah, there's loads of stuff to look at on the yeah. website, but uh, you know, folks can do that. Awesome. Thanks so much for your uh, work as well in um, bringing this kind of stuff to, to people. Oh, thank you. Honestly, it was very selfish in the beginning. I wanted to talk to cool people. So <laughs> That's pretty much where I am. Um, so I just want to tell everyone that Damage Like Me is incredible. And I honestly, so um, there, there was, it took my breath away in moments. And I am a reader. Um, and so I can honestly say that there's been very few books, I'd say maybe 30 or 40 that took my breath away in parts like this book did. So thank you so much for the way you share yourself so openly and beautifully and stunning like I all the words all the the leaves um it's just fabulous so thank you so much for this and taking some time to talk with me today of course and you know the book release is actually the 29th of this month and so they're still having it on the website at the publisher for pre-sale at 25 percent off and you you'll be the first to get it because you know I think they're probably sending out the pre-sale books next week awesome so I'll put the link in um the show notes for that. So it is June, 2021 right now. So that would be June 29th, 2021. In case anybody, in case you're in the future listening to this. Um, and then you could probably find it on any other online things, but the publisher is doing pre-online. So cool. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Nourish Circle. Don't forget to like us on iTunes or Spotify and subscribe so that you never miss an episode.